Amen. This is what Jesus does. He pleads our cause. He rights our wrongs. He sets us free. That's our God. Let's put our hands together and praise Jesus Christ. So we're beginning Ruth today. It's a love story. It's one of the greatest love stories ever told. It's a love story that has all the elements of a good love story. There's tragedy, there's despair, there's hope, there's triumph, there's love, there's restoration, there's redemption. And there's a good love story quote. Every good love story has a quote, right? And so I have a few of the greatest uh, love stories in, you know, recent cinema history in America and, uh, and, and the quotes from them. Now, I don't want you guys to think that I just sit around watching chick flicks, so I have, to, I have, a, I have to preface this by saying I googled this, all right? I don't just have these things just rolling off my tongue. So I'm going to give you a quote, and then you tell me the, uh, the, the chick flick that it was from, all right? To me, you're perfect, To me, you're already perfect. Love, actually. I I didn't know that one either. Like I said, I Googled them. Maybe you'll know this one. You complete me. You had me at hello. All right, good job. How about this? If um, If you're a bird, I'm a bird. I didn't know that. Good job. All right. Um... Okay, this is a good one. It's a classic. You should be kissed, and often, and by someone who knows how. Gone with the wind. Good job. I, I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so badly. You've got mail. All right. How about this one? We'll always have Paris. Casablanca. Good job. All right. How about this one? I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Notting Hill. Good job. All right. One more. And then we'll, I'll put you guys out of your misery and we'll stop this after one more. Okay. I'll never let go, Jack. Titanic. <laughs> And yet she let go just a few minutes later, didn't she? That was pretty uncool of her. You know what? The book of Ruth is a love story. Like I said, it's one of the greatest love stories ever told. Actually, it's the greatest love story ever told because it's a story within a story. It's a story within a greater story in which we are all, even presently, Involved. It's a story within a story of God redeeming a people and to himself, bringing them from a place of despair to hope, from tragedy to triumph. It's a story of the gospel that shared in the Old Testament. And this story also has a great quote to you. And I'm going to read my favorite quote to you from the book of Ruth. Ruth says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if death separates us. If anything but death separates you and me. What a great quote, huh? One of the reasons that the book of Ruth is such a powerful love story that has just captured the hearts and the imaginations of people uh, across the world throughout the centuries is because we can relate with it. Because we all know what it is to walk through tragedy. And we all know what it is to be in despair. And it's a story of how God is involved working in all the details of our tragedy, all the details of our despair, and yes, even all the details of our sin and our mistakes and our failures to accomplish His glorious purpose in our lives to restore our hearts 
and cause us to be a people who praises Him and reflects His love and glory. One of our youth, Brandy, wrote a really beautiful poem that I thought that it, it flows really well with the book of Ruth because it captures the hearts of one of the heroes in the book of Ruth, and that's Naomi. And this is a, a poem that, that Brandy wrote herself, and I asked her to read it. Brandy, would you make your way up? And if you would put your hands together and welcome, Brandy. Um, this poem is called To Be Me. Um, the, absences, the abstinence of a mother means the abstinence of a child. But what are they to do when you are placed in a place where no one knows your name and to stand in the cold with fear, waiting to be for a rescue? But who am I to blame when no one comes? What are they to do when you've lost strength emotionally because of the person has he has yet to transform you into? What are they to do when you hid the tears and pain that flowed through your veins behind a mask? No one knows the feeling you felt when you were not to be held by the person you always wanted. What are they to do when you've lost hope in everything and have given up? For the sake of love, I am still here. What, are they, what can they do when I'm still standing after all the bullets that killed the tissue in my skin that I've used to wipe my tears away with? Or the blinds from the window that hid in the darkness of my eyes from seeing what could be the truth. What am I to do when no one is on your side, when your confidence has went below sea level, and your courage has flown away from shore, and they still ask, what are they to do? What are you to do? What are you to do when you've lost your courage, when you've lost your hope? What are you to do when you're just in despair? What are you to do? Well, that's the question that uh, one of the heroes in the story, Naomi, asked. That's the question that Ruth asked. So every story has a time, it has a place, and it has a people. So let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, open it to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to walk through Ruth together for the next four weeks. There's four chapters in the book of Ruth, and there are uh, four weeks throughout this series. So that provides a couple of uh, challenges for us as we walk through the book of Ruth. Uh, the first challenge is this. Uh, we're going to break the book of Ruth down over a four-week period. Now, when the book of Ruth was written, it was originally written so as to be read in one setting. In fact, if you just listen to the book of Ruth, just read verbatim, it would probably take about 15 minutes, and yet we're going to break it down. And so there's a tendency to look at the end of the book of Ruth to see how it ends, uh, but we're going to resist that temptation. So rather than like looking at the end of the story uh, in order to have a better context of the beginning of the story in which we are starting, we are just going to hold off on the end of the story. And that, that would be one adequate way to study the book of Ruth, look at the end to understand the context of the beginning, but instead, we're just going to start at the beginning, and we're going to go slowly, and we're going to let the tension build that the author, and who we don't know who actually wrote the book was, uh, but the author intended for there to be uh, tension, for us to, to feel the drama, for us to feel the pain, for us to feel the hopelessness and the despair that the heroes of the book of Ruth felt. Another challenge is that it was originally written, of course, in Hebrew, and we are reading it in Greek, and so we lose some of the uh, 
literary devices that the author implements in order to uh, communicate. And so we will try to navigate through that the best we can and point those out as we come across them. So let's start with Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. And we'll begin by looking at the time, and then we'll look at the place, and then we'll look at the people involved, and then we'll look at what the Holy Spirit has for us today in this context in Fort Worth. And I do hope that you stick with us for the remaining series, and I believe that it's going to transform your life, and I think that the book of Ruth will become one of your new favorite books of the Bible. So Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, this is the time, in the days when the judges ruled. And as we've said, this is uh, listed... uh, Chronologically, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Judges, Ruth. And so the book of Ruth took place. This was an event about a family, about a person that was seemingly insignificant in the days that the judges ruled. These are the days that you read about, about Samson, about Gideon, and those guys, about Deborah, the judges. It was a day when there was a pattern involved in the life of the children of Israel. It was one of the lowest seasons in the entire history of the, of the, of the people of Israel. It was a day in which they did not have a king. And because they didn't have a king, everybody governed them their, their, their own selves. And as a result of that, they eventually fell into idolatry and lawlessness. And in order to discipline and bring them back to a place of uh, restoration and holiness, God would allow an enemy to come and to conquer them or to beset them. And then the people would turn to God and cry out to God. And don't we so often do that? We might talk about God on the mountaintop, but isn't it in the valley that we actually talk to God and we try to align our hearts and minds with God? And this was the pattern of the people of Israel. Now, to really understand the times of the judges in which the book of Ruth took place, and most scholars believe that it was somewhere probably right in the middle of the book of Judges that the book of Ruth took place, we don't have to look any further than the very last chapter and the last verse of the book of Ruth. Let's look at this, the last chapter and the last book, uh, excuse me, of the book of Judges. So if you have your Bible open, you're looking at Ruth. Ruth is probably on the right hand of the page. If you look on the left hand of the page, you see the last chapter of the book of Judges. And now let's look at the last verse and the last chapter of the book of Judges. And it really, it really paints a very clear picture of the times in which Ruth lived. In those days, this is Judges chapter 21 verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so this is the time in which Ruth lived. This is the time in which her family lived. So let's continue to read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting, Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And there's a famine in the land. And most scholars believe that the famine is probably a result of the pattern of Judges because the book of Ruth takes place again somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges. And the pattern of the book of Judges is God's people fall into sin and as a result God brings discipline upon his people and it causes them to turn and repent and then God restores his people as uh, the fellowship and the relationship with their God is restored. So there's a famine in the land. Interestingly, this famine is in Bethlehem and Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't that ironic? The house of bread has no bread. And so the time is the book of Judges, and the place is Bethlehem, the house of bread, in a time that they have no bread, and there's a famine. And now we begin seeing people, the people begin emerging in this plot. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, and interestingly, this man's name is Elimelech. Elimelech. And Elimelech means the Lord is his king. In a time in which they didn't have a king, so everybody did what it was right in his own eyes, the man's name is Elimelech, which means the Lord is his king. But we see that he was no different than his contemporaries, than the context and the culture in which he lived, because the Lord was not his king. The Lord did not call the shots. The Lord was not his ruler. The Lord was not his sustenance, because he looked elsewhere. Elimelech and his two sons, with his wife, whose name is Naomi, they left Bethlehem, the house of bread that had no bread, to go live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, you've got to understand this. How did, how did Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, how did they wind up in Bethlehem anyway? Well, they wound up in Bethlehem because of the sovereignty of God. They wound up in Bethlehem because of the promises of God and the obedience and the faith and the daring of their forefathers. Bethlehem was in the promised land, the land that God told Abraham, their forefather, I'll give you a land and bless you and... And then there were the patriarchs who looked forward to the promised land, this land that Bethlehem was in. And then there was uh, Jacob, and there was Isaac, and there was the, the people of God, and then there was Moses, and then they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, always looking forward to the promised land. And that brings us up to Genesis, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and now right At the end of Deuteronomy and about to go into Joshua, we see that the people of God are finally about to step in faith under the leadership of Joshua and inherit their promised land. And they're there in the promised land. This is the land that God promised them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land in which God said, I will provide for you in this land. And yet, Elimelech, whose name means the Lord is my king, was not acting so. He was acting as if the world was his sustenance and the, the world was his source of security, and so he leaves a Jewish man, a Hebrew man, leaves Bethlehem, the promised land, to go to, of all places, Moab. Now, to understand Moab, Moab is a people that resulted from Lot's lineage. Now, Lot had a very very strong allure and attraction to the world, and Lot had an incestuous relationship with, of all things, his daughters. And as a result of this offspring, we have the Moabite people, a people that were born in sin. And then on top of that, we read in the book of Deuteronomy that the Moabite women, you've got to get this, you've got to get this to understand where we're going in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. The Moabite women in the book of Deuteronomy sexually seduced the Hebrew men and their worship uh, had, had connotations of, of sexual connotations in their worship rituals and practices. And the, Moabout, the Moabite women sexually seduced the Hebrew men and caused them to fall into sexual immorality and sexual idolatry. And as a result, God's judgment came upon his people and 24,000 Hebrew people died. As a result of that. 
And on top of that, as the children of Israel were crossing through the wilderness and, and they were trying to find a safe passage, they wanted to cut through the land of Moab and the king of Moab didn't trust his distant cousins, the Hebrews, and he said, no, there's no way you're going to pass through. And so there's this tension between the Hebrews and the Moabites. And so Elimelech, taking matters into his own hands, tries to outrun his problems by stepping outside of the will of God. And any time we do that, we jump out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. And this is exactly what happens. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of their two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. And you want to know what? They only planned to go there to live for a season. You want to know how long that Naomi, the wife, ended up staying in Moab? Ten years. And this is the nature of trying to outrun our problems by stepping outside of the will of God. This is the nature of trying to take matters into our own hands, even if it means the Lord is not the ruler of my life. Sin always takes us. Further than we plan to stray. It holds us longer than we meant to stay. And it costs us far more than we ever thought that we would pay. And this is the nature of sin. We don't know how far it's going to take us, how long it's going to hold us, and how much it's going to cost us. But it's always more than we anticipated. Elimelech left a place of obedience, a place of trusting in God to be his sustenance. And he went to Moab, and it kept him there, and it cost him. And so these are the first two verses. And now, the following three verses, the writer of Ruth implements a writing style um, that's very abrupt. It's very cold. It's very harsh. Um, It's very impersonal. It's cold, hard facts. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, of all things. Insult on top of injury. They married, of all things, Moabite women, which was inconsistent and contradictory to the law of Moses. They were not to marry Moabite women, a women that, that, that brought destruction upon the people of the Hebrews, a people that there was intense friction and rivalry and hatred between. Naomi's husband died. Her sons, to add insult to injury, married Moabite women, one's name's Op. Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech stepped outside of the will of God to try to take matters into his own hands. To try to, to, to lead his household by sight, rather by faith, and we never know where those consequences are going to lead us. When we choose to walk by faith and not by sight, is it going to cost us? Yes. Will there be sacrifices involved? Yes. Is it more difficult in the short term? Yes. But we will leave a godly legacy and God will provide for us, and the safest place is God's place, no matter how dangerous that might seem. Elimelech never should have left Bethlehem, especially for Moab. 
he lost his life. His two sons lost their lives. We don't know the details surrounding it. We don't know how it happened. Those are just the cold, hard facts. And then we pick up with verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, prepared to leave the place, Moab, that they had been living and set out to that road that would take them back to the land of Judah, back home, back to Bethlehem, that once again had bread. Verse 8. Naomi said to her, to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each one of you, to your, to, to, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you've shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And can you imagine what these th- three women have been through together? The famine, the, the death, the loss, the tears... The funerals, the grieving. And they were going to go back. And, and Naomi told her daughters-in-law, no, 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 don't go with me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye. They wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. And now there's this argument between Naomi and her daughter-in-laws. And the daughter-in-laws are saying, we're going to go with you. Naomi's saying, no, you go back. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a confrontation over this. In verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So let's just review what Naomi has been through. She left her people to go to a foreign, unfamiliar land, the Moabites. They stepped out of sync of God. They stepped out of fellowship with God. There, her husband dies. Her two sons marry, of all things, Moabite women, insult to injury, and then her two sons die. And on top of all of this, that uh, her... her her lineage will be cut off. And in this culture, in this context, in ancient Hebrew history, that was a tragedy. Her lineage, her husband's name, will be cut off. It will end with Elimelech. And so we read in verse 14, At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So let me review where we are so far in this story. Elimelech messed up. And now we're in a position where Naomi, I believe, now this is just my opinion, but I believe that Naomi is covering up. I believe that she's so insistent to her two daughter-in-laws not to return back to her Hebrew people because they're Moabites. And she knows that she knows that they will be shunned, she knows that they will be feared, she knows they will be looked down upon, she knows that they're going to be the um, 
They're going to be the blame for the curse that she feels is is upon her life. Like in the example in Deuteronomy when 24,000 Hebrews died because of what? Moabite women. And now look at Naomi's life. And now she's going to bring these Moabite women back to Bethlehem. She's ashamed of them. She's afraid of them. Elimelech messed up. Naomi is trying to cover up. Orpah gives up. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and went back home. But Ruth, the hero of the story, Ruth steps up. This Moabite woman, woman, she steps up and she places faith. Not in Elimelech, not in Naomi. She places faith in the God of the Hebrew people. She places faith in the God that the Hebrew Elimelech was not placing faith in. This Hebrew woman steps up and places faith in God. And she tells Naomi, I am not leaving you. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And I suspect that the two visited the three gravesides one more time, and they headed back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Verse 19, so when the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, they arrived in Bethlehem, and the whole town was astir because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Can this be Naomi? Do you want to know what Naomi means? Naomi means pleasant, peace. And when they saw her, they said, can this be Naomi? She left with a bright countenance. Whoa, she looks bitter. Naomi is a woman who is sort of alive, but really dead. She's like a wax figure. I mean, she's a haunting reflection of who she used to be and who she's supposed to be, but not who God made her to be. She's a wax figure. And they look at her and they say, can this be pleasant in verse 20 Naomi says don't call me Naomi call me Mara which means bitter because the almighty has made my life bitter I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty why call me Naomi the Lord has afflicted me the almighty has brought misfortune upon me So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And to conclude, we draw three practical applications from this. The first, when we are suffering, where is God? Where is God? And if we don't have a conviction of where God is in the midst of our suffering, then be certain we will also become a wax figure, a haunting reflection of who we used to be and who we're supposed to be, but not who God made us to be. And the passion in our heart will be evaporated, we'll be a dead person walking, and our countenance will be bitter. Where was God the last ten years of Naomi's life? 
Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Watch this. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, but I came back and I have nothing. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a second. Put yourself in Ruth's place for a second. How would you feel? You just pledged your undying love to Naomi, to, to Naomi, and you come back to a people that you know is going to uh, look at you with racial discrimination and even hatred, and there's going to be tension, and you know that they're going to blame you for all the misfortune that has not only happened to your people, but has happened to your immediate family. And you come back with Naomi into Bethlehem, and then all the women are astir. They're focused on Naomi. They're looking at her with scowls and with condescending glances and with judgmentalism and they don't even acknowledge her because it's very clear that she doesn't belong it's very clear that she's an alien it's very clear that she is a Moabite and then Naomi proceeds to say I went away full but I came back with nothing and then with that everybody looks at Ruth what do you do? Well, you just drop your head, don't you? And you just look down. And you realize, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Oh. Oh. Naomi did not realize, but Ruth was so much. God was in Ruth And working through Ruth in a way that would bless the entire world in a way that nobody could fathom. Did you realize that there are only two books in the entire Bible, all 66 books, that are named after women? Ruth and Esther. But did you realize that Ruth is the only book in the Bible in the Old Testament that's named after a female who is not a Jew? Did you know that Ruth would eventually get married? I'm jumping ahead a little, and they would have a son, and their son would have a son, and their son would have a son, and their son would have a son, and all down the generations. And did you know that uh, Ruth's great-great-son is going to be none other than King David? And did you furthermore know that, that her lineage will continue to perpetuate to the Messiah, so that in the book of Matthew, when it's looking at the lineage of the Messiah, that there are five women's names who are mentioned in the New Testament that are outlining the lineage, the, the history of the Messiah. There's, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the other four are very unexpected. There's Rahab, the prostitute. There's Bathsheba the adulterer. And of all things, there's Ruth that's mentioned, the Moabite. So here's Naomi saying, I have nothing. She had so much. She had God's sovereign hand guiding her, even when she didn't see it, even when she didn't feel it, to an appointment with a miracle that was greater than she could have ever, ever, ever imagined. She thought she had nothing. She thought that her lineage cut off with her husband. That is not true. Her lineage was about to perpetuate to the Messiah, the Christ himself, the hope of the world. And did you know that when you 
least feel the presence of God in your life and you least see his hand working in your life, he is most present orchestrating his sovereign will to a glorious conclusion that you could never, ever imagine. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that you could ever ask or imagine. And he is most at work in your life when you least see it and when you least feel it. This is called the sovereignty of God. Where is God? Oh, he was present. He was guiding. He was orchestrating. He was with Naomi and her family in a way that she could never understand. And so that leads us to the second question. Why? Why all the pain? Why all the suffering? And this is answer two. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara because of the Almighty. He's made my life bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Two verses. God is mentioned four times using two different names. Two verses, two names are used. The other two verses, two other names are used. Two verses, the Almighty is used. That That means Shaddai. Interestingly, it's the same word that Job used to talk about God, Shaddai, in very similar terminology. Shaddai, the Almighty, has visited great bitterness upon me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It speaks to God's sovereignty, it speaks to His loftiness, it speaks to the truth that He's high and lifted up, that His ways are above our ways. He's the Almighty, He's Shaddai. It speaks to the truth that we don't always understand God. We don't always feel God. We don't always know what God is up to. We don't always see his hand at work. But then the other two names in these four verses are the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. It means Yahweh. It's God's personal name. It means, yes, God is high and lifted up, but he's also close. And he's communicative, he's dynamic, he's ever-present, he's with us. He's high and lifted up, but he's close. I don't understand him, but I trust him. I don't feel him, but I've got a conviction that he is faithful. I don't know how this is going to work, but he promised that it would. I don't see everything working together for the good, but he told me that it would. He is high and lifted up. His ways are higher than our ways, but he is close and personal and always orchestrating things to a glorious conclusion. This means that God's sovereignty is greater than our sin. They never should have left Bethlehem. They never should have gone to Moab. And yet God touched that decision to interweave his redemptive master plan for the hope of the world. God's sovereignty is greater than our sin. Not only that, God's sovereignty is greater than our suffering and our sorrow. We don't always feel God, but we have the conviction that God is ever-present, and he's working, orchestrating his sovereign plan into our life. Where is God? He's with us. Even when we don't feel him or see him, especially when we don't feel him or see him. Why are we going through what we're going through? We 
may not have all the answers to all the whys this side of eternity, but we do know, we do have a promise that they'll result in praiseworthy conclusions where we'll want to climb the highest mountaintop and shout to the world through the loudest megaphone, it's true, it's true, it's true. God really does work all things together for the good of those who love Him. It's true, it's true, it's true. He really is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything I could ever ask or imagine. It's true. God is close to the brokenhearted. It's true. He does bind up the brokenhearted. He does heal our wounds. He does bring beauty for ashes. It's true. And I don't know how God is going to weave His glorious, masterful, powerful, beautiful, praiseworthy, redemptive plan into your sin and into your sorrow, but I know that He will. It's true. Where was God? He was present. Why do they experience the pain? Some things are mysteries, but God's character and His goodness and the testimonies of saints in this church and throughout the generations are rock solid and we can stand on them. So how? How is He going to bring beauty out of ashes? How is He going to do that? Verse 22. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. And here's a, here's a glimmer of hope in a very despairing chapter, because we're not going to run ahead of ourselves. We're going to take this slow. But here's a glimmer of hope in a very despairing chapter. The barley harvest was beginning. In the land of famine, the barley harvest was beginning. This barley harvest was in springtime. The air was crisp, the blue, the, the sky was bluer, the, the flowers were blossoming, the harvest was here. And how is God going to breathe beauty out of your ashes? We don't know exactly, but we know that He will, and it'll be worth it. And you're going to look back on the pain and the suffering, and you're going to shudder. But you're not going to shudder at the thought of having walked through it. You're going to shudder at the thought of your life without it. Because God used that to glorify himself in your life and to draw you so close to him and to shine his life and love through your life so that so many people will want to know Christ as a result of it. There's a, a story about a, a man and his ministry was he would take these bottles, these empty wine bottles, and he would clean them up and he'd put gospel tracts inside. And then he would, uh, he lived in uh, uh, Louisiana and he would put these bottles in uh, the, the, the Mississippi River and he would pray over them and just hope that somebody somewhere would pick up the bottle and read the gospel and get saved and he'd put his phone number there to call it. So he put one bottle in the Mississippi River and, you know, seven years later he got a call from a guy in, of all places, Greece. And the guy in Greece said, I found this bottle, I saw it on the shore, I opened it, I read the track, I read how Jesus loves me, I gave my life to Christ, he got saved, he was born again, he was redeemed, he was a new creature, and he said, I just want to call and say thank you for that. Seven years later. Imagine the journey of that bottle. Through the Mississippi River, out the Gulf of Mexico, across the Atlantic Ocean, for seven years. And can you imagine somewhere 
throughout the course of the seven years. That bottle was somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And let's, let's imagine that perhaps somebody in a boat saw something glistening way off into the horizon. So they got some binoculars, and they looked, and they saw that it was a bottle. And they thought, that bottle is aimless. That bottle is lost. That bottle is trash. That bottle has no purpose. That bottle is going to crash. That bottle has a destiny at the very bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And that would be true, but the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is His unseen hand guiding our life through our sorrow. His unseen hand guiding our life through our sadness. His unseen hand guiding our life, yes, even through our mistakes, our sins, and our failures. To an appointment, to a conclusion on the shores of Greece. A miracle. And this was Naomi. God was guiding her. This was Ruth. God was guiding her. This book is so beautiful. It is so filled with hope. It is so filled with what Christ wants to do in your life. And it is a beautiful love story. And it's a picture of how God's hand is guiding us right now through our biggest setbacks and failures. Through our disappointments, through our loss, through our pain, through our loneliness, through our fears, through our frustrations, through our heartache. Through things folks have said about us, whatever it might be, God's sovereign hand is guiding you. But, you have to surrender your life. You have to surrender your life to Him. You have to decide to leave Moab, and you have to make a decision to go back to Bethlehem. You see, Naomi could have prayed all day, every day in Moab, God, bless me. But in reality, she had to position herself in a manner to be blessed. She had to return. She had to return. Elimelech ran from God. Naomi and Ruth returned to God. And so God took all their heartache, all their suffering, all their pain, all their sin, all their failure, and he orchestrated it into a beautiful conclusion. And God will do the exact same thing with your sin, your failure, your heartache, your setbacks, your tragedy, your loss. But you have to put yourself in a position to be blessed. That means return to God. Some of you who are here and you're not a Christian, you've never given your life to Christ, and he's saying, come to me. Some of you are a Christian, you have given your life to Christ, and he's saying, return to me. You know what I love about this? I, I, I love about the story of Naomi. I, I love about this that she's a lady who thought that the best was behind her. And know this. Anytime you think the best is behind you, you lose your passion. You lose your heart for God. You lose your hunger for God. I know so many Christians, so many mature Christians, so many seasoned saints who think that the best encounters, the best experiences with Jesus Christ are behind them. Let me tell you something. In Christ, the best is always yet to come. He is the author of your life, and he has no idea how to write an anticlimactic story. And if we seek him, we will find him. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I would love to see you seasoned, mature saints who have had some some great encounters with Christ, in your relationship with Christ in the past to develop a hunger and thirst for God so that you return to God and you hunger for Him and you thirst for Him and you demand to be satisfied by the living waters of Jesus Christ in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Hunger for God, thirst for God. Some of you, Jesus is saying, come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Others, God is saying, return to me. The best is not behind you. The best is ahead of you. Seek me with your whole heart. Stop drinking from the sewer waters of this world and long for the living waters of the Holy Spirit again. The best is yet to come. You know, the book of Ruth is a love story, and as I've been reading over it many times throughout the last couple of weeks, it struck me that the book of Ruth is very similar to the story of Cinderella. Have you all ever thought about that comparison? Cinderella was a beat up and beat down and overlooked, discriminated against young lady, yet there was something special about her. There was a spark. And this girl who was just used to to basically just being degraded and being condescended and, and rough, laborious work uh, caught the eye of a prince. And then the love story ensued. You know, the book of Ruth is very similar. I won't give too much of the story away as, uh, you know, the chapters unfold, but, but she was a discriminated against girl. She was looked down upon Yet there was a spark about her. There was something special about her that caught the eye of a ruler of the land. And we'll see his name was Boaz. And the love story ensued. And this is a picture, as I said, of a much greater picture. A story of God redeeming a people into himself, bringing them from a place of tragedy to hope and despair to triumph. It's a picture of God and his relationship with you and his relationship with me. And you and I are Ruth. We are that girl who's, we are that person, we are that soul that's lost in our sin, that's lost, that's overlooked, that's looked down upon. And yet, there's the king of kings who sees something about us that captures him. And so the love story ensues. But can you imagine how Cinderella would have ended had Cinderella have said, um, No, no, I'm just going to go back to my old life. I'm going to put on my rags and I'm going to go back to scrubbing floors for my evil stepsisters. That wouldn't have been a great story. Can you imagine how the book of Ruth would have concluded if she's told Boaz, no, I'm going to go back to my rags and just continue my, my labor. Well, that wouldn't have been a great love story, huh? But Jesus Christ is saying, come unto me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I'll give you rest for your souls. He'll cleanse us. He'll forgive us. He'll make us his child. He'll put his spirit within us. He'll give us a purpose for living. He'll be our friend through life. He'll give us the promise of heaven. But you have to say yes. Or it's no relationship with God at all. You've got to say yes. So to some, Jesus is saying, come unto me. To others, Jesus is saying, return to me. And for everybody here, we will either say yes or no. But if we say yes, then what Christ will do, he will take our sin, our failure, our sorrow, our frustration, our fear, and he'll begin orchestrating it to unspeakably praiseworthy conclusions. Would you stand with me? If you would like to return to Christ, if you would like to come to Christ, would you bow your heads with me, please? I would just want to lead everybody in a prayer to come to Christ, maybe for the first time. And you just want to say yes to Jesus Christ, because he died on the cross for your sins. 
He died so you could have life. He died so you could enter into a relationship with him. He died and rose again so that he could make all things new in your life. But you have to respond. You have to say yes. Everybody bow your head and pray in an audible voice if you want to receive Christ. And pray out loud, even if you're saved, to encourage the person next to you. God, I have sinned. And I've been separated from you. And I sent it in my heart. An emptiness, a longing. But I realize that longing is for you. Thank you for dying on the cross, Jesus, to pay for my sins, to show me how much you love me. I say yes to you, and I invite you into my life to be my Lord and Savior, my my forgiver, my leader. Give me salvation, and I trust you to bring beauty out of my ashes, to bring joy out of my sorrow, to bring life out of my death. Now help me to grow in you. And perhaps you're one of these Christians that needs to return to Christ. To some he said, come to me. To others he's saying, return to me. And perhaps you have some tragedy in your life. Perhaps you have some trauma There's a saying, time heals all wounds. Don't believe a word of it. Time does not heal all wounds. Time makes bitter. Only Christ heals all wounds. Only Christ heals all wounds when we surrender our entire heart to Him and trust Him to beautify the ashes, to bless our offender, to to, to forgive our sins, to, to make everything culminate into an unspeakably beautiful, praiseworthy conclusion. But we have to return from Moab to Bethlehem for God to ignite our tragedy into triumph. And perhaps you just need to return to the Lord. And I want to invite you to come down to this altar and say, God, here I am. My whole heart, my whole mind, it's yours. Take it. Restore me. Bring beauty out of the ashes in my life. And trust Him to do it. And say, I believe you're going to do it. And I'm going to leave this place not walking in a disposition of despair, a, a, a defeatist Count with a defeatist countenance, but I will leave here with a disposition and a countenance of victory because God will bring the victory about in my life because God said that it would be so. He didn't say I wouldn't have trouble, but he did say he would turn the trouble into triumph when I trust him with it. And so I just want to invite you to come down and trust him with whatever it is that you've gone through, with whatever it is that's in your past. There's nothing in your past, nothing in your past, no sorrow, no sin. No slander, nothing. There is nothing in your past that excludes you from God's beautiful, surprising blessings and victories in your life. But you've got to return to Him. So, uh, would you bow your heads? If you need to return to the Lord, if there's some sorrow that needs to be worked into some triumph in your life, would you raise your hand? Father, you see these hands. In Jesus' name, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work unspeakably praiseworthy conclusions to you be the glory as they give and surrender and trust their entire life to you. Amen.